welcome back, everyone, to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. Uh, we are in episode four of season two, which is crazy to me and a lot of fun and really exciting, as you all know. That's uh, just kind of my, my thing. Um, so a couple of things about today, today's episode. One big one is that I may sound like I'm talking out of my nose, but I was helping my grandparents move this weekend, and there's a lot of dust and the allergies are in the air, so just ignore that part. Um, I'm less important here anyway, but our guest is the most important, so you'll be focusing on her either way. All right, so without further ado, we do have a fantastic guest coming in today. Her name is Morgan Pommel. Uh, she is an eating disorder and trauma therapist located in Ottawa, Ontario. She's a HAES provider, which means health at every size provider, and works from a weight-neutral approach. She has been a social worker for eight years and has worked globally in both social work and humanitarian aid. She's also a published peer-reviewed author and is currently completing her PhD at the University of Ottawa. Welcome to the show, Morgan. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited. You're welcome. We're excited to have you here. I always say we, like there's more than just me <laughs> behind this mic, but whatever. Yes, I'm excited to have you here. Uh, I was really appreciated that you uh, took me up on the offer to come on. And I know there's, uh, you know, when I was thinking about like questions to ask and where to dive in for today, I had no idea where to go because there were so many different areas that we could cover, uh, which is for me very exciting to try to sort out like well, what the heck is going to happen. Uh, but before we jump into that, I wanted to just give you the opportunity to fill in any of the blanks that I might have missed in the bio and to help the audience know how to find you, social media handles, websites, and that sort of thing. Sure. So yeah, I, I think you mostly covered it. I've been working as a social worker for several years. Um, prior to doing therapy work in private practice, I worked in humanitarian assistance for a lot of years. Um, so I definitely bring some cultural elements to my work as well, um, particularly on the social justice pieces and the intersectionality pieces, because for me in my practice, I mean, that all comes together. That is all part of the larger picture. Um, but in terms of where people can find me, I'm on Instagram at Morgan P Therapy. And I also have a website, morganpommels.com. And those are the easiest ways to find me. Awesome. Awesome. So you've done a lot of uh, different work. And I would imagine every piece of the work from like your undergrad all the way through the humanitarian aid to counseling has guided you towards where you want to go. Can you walk us through kind of that journey a little bit? Sure. I mean, that's a good question because it, it wasn't always um, obvious that this would be where I eventually end up. I originally got into social work because I'm, I mean, I'm super passionate about social issues and social justice. And, and that was the biggest reason of getting into social work that eventually expanded to doing work abroad. Um, but what it always kind of came back to was this element of being there for people in really rough times. Those rough times are often at the intersection of social issues, right? Experiencing marginalization or whatever it might be at the time. Um, and I, yeah, I mean, I, I eventually got to a place where I was doing humanitarian work in Canada. Um, so at a distance and I noticed I really just missed that frontline people to people element. So that's what initially spurred me opening my private practice in 2018. Um, and now today it's what I do full time. So it definitely, I mean, it definitely informed my, it, it informs my work today, but it wasn't always as obvious. And I think the piece that 
initially drew me to eating disorders in, in specifically or more in general, maybe even is this piece around social justice, because we don't talk about eating disorders as like a, a social problem, or we don't talk about it as a, a, the elements of it that are related to social justice. And when I started to really notice these inequities when it came to eating disorders, disordered eating, fat phobia, all that kind of stuff, that's what really pushed me even more into this niche in general. So it definitely all uh, contributes and informs my work today. It just wasn't always as obvious as this is where it was going to end up. Fair enough. I know the journey is often uh, mm-hmm. like winding roads, right? I know, I know for myself, I started out as a, with a, a BA in philosophy. And when I was in philosophy, I was just passionate about the stuff I was learning. I had no sweet clue what the heck I was going to do with my life or what even interested. I know the, we, we've talked about this story a lot on the, the podcast, but what got me into university was a girl. I went for a girl, not for the school. And I, I, I assumed I was going to fail after three months, but then instead I fell in love with philosophy and that kind of <laughs> took me from there. But the things I was learning in philosophy, uh, such as like love, reciprocity, well-being, guided me to a master's in philosophy as well in capability theory. So if you've worked in social justice, you've definitely seen like Martha Nussbaum and Martia Sen's capability theory. And that's what really started me on the road, kinda, because I used capability theory as a life coaching tool afterwards, which eventually led me to mental health, which guided me here, but it was all underlined by personal experiences I had from when I was young. Uh, When I was 13, 14, I was suicidal and I went through like a big deep anxiety and depression phase which came back in my twenties. So all of these, um, I think of them in terms of like music, right? All these different rhythms were coalescing together until they hit a fever pitch after my master's when I was like, wait a minute, it's counseling. This is kind of what I'm doing, um, which led me here. So it's all, it's neat how these journeys kind of seem to go in every direction, but coalesce into their own rhythm eventually down the road. Yeah. I mean, I, I fully agree with you. It's funny too, because, you know, people along the way might say to you, Hey, like you should consider this, or you'd be really good at this. And you might go, well, you know, I don't know if that's for me. I remember people telling me, um, you know, you'd be a good therapist or even just getting into social work. Cause the first two years of my undergraduate experience was just like general arts. So I remember people saying like, you should do social work. And I just was like, mm, you know, I don't know if that's for me, mm-hmm. but organically ended up here. And I think that speaks a little bit to like the calling and conviction pieces of doing this work. I don't really see it as like, um, I, I don't know, I, I guess for me, it's just much deeper than that. It definitely feels like it's a dedication. It feels like it's a bit of a calling mm-hmm. and it, it kind of speaks to this piece of ending up where you're supposed to be. Like, even as you share a bit about your story, I find it interesting, the, the piece between life coaching and counseling, mm-hmm. right? How that might seem obvious of a transition, right? But that there's still these phases we go through of um, before or just before we end up at the end spot where we were supposed to be. It's, mm-hmm. it's all just really interesting the journey we have to take to get to where we end up yeah that's right I mean it seems obvious unless you've been in it that life coaching would lead to counseling but life coaching and counseling isn't two entirely different things yeah entirely different like one is directive one is Mm non-directive and that that was the hardest switch for me right as a life coach I'm helping people like life map you know you want to get a new career you want to go here let's do it (laughs) here's the map here's how you do it good luck right 
but as a counselor, it's entirely related to, okay, well, what's going on for you? What barriers are in place? What do we need to do just to remove the barriers so that the organism and the person, you can thrive on your own where you want to go? So how do we hone in on the things that are holding you back, whether they're biological, psychological, or sociological? Or social, sorry. I always mix the two up. But what are the barriers in place and, and how are you encountering them? How's the body responding to these things? Did and, you, can I ask, did you find that difficult making that switch? Oh, incredibly difficult. Yeah. Incredibly difficult. Because it always, it's a funny thing because it always bothered me to be so directional because of just the capability background, right? So the, with the capability approach to development, my take on Amartya Sen's approach, which I liked versus Nussbaum, right? So Nussbaum had categories for, for development. So she's, you know, you need to make sure the kids are doing the following thing. Like they have to play, they have a space to do this, right? And with Sen, he said, well, it, that's community specific. You can't just bring uh, categories into the community because every community is different. The politics work different. The people think differently. So, and I bought into that because it made perfect sense simply because people are so different. And, you know, we're all incredibly different all the way around. So for me to walk in and say, okay, do this and you'll be fine. was, was always weird because of that. Right. But when I became a life coach, I didn't know enough about uh, what's called process in philosophy. I didn't know enough about process to know that I wasn't supposed to be directional or directive. And so after a couple of years after my master's, when I was floating around, I became a life coach. I started it, then I left, then I went to other jobs. Um, I got into my master's for psychology, but at the same time, I started reading Alfred North Whitehead, which eventually led me to Deleuze and Foucault. So these thinkers that I had never encountered before, uh, I did it as a hobbyist philosopher. But for Deleuze and, and Whitehead, it was all about process. I didn't know that something as small as process or change was something to think about. I was more related to like results. If you want to get somewhere, this is right. And so that blew my mind for one full year of trying to, trying to even think about the process of change. And then the more I got into that, the more I was like, wait a minute, because I was studying counseling at the exact same time, just because I'm a glutton for punishment. So I have to do more than I should. And I, I started to think, well, it makes less and less sense to tell people what to do. It makes more and more sense to inform them about the situation and then watch as they start to see, like see their barriers differently. So similar to Martia Sen's approach, how people grow in their capabilities is up to them. And if you remove the barriers, those capabilities will blossom or leverage, right? You can look at the strengths that people have used in the past and leverage them in a different situation and then watch as they either take the tools or drop them, but it's not up to me to, be, to put the hammer in your hand, right? And so that blew my mind entirely, which led me ultimately to Carl Rogers. And when I found Carl Rogers halfway through my program, that was it for me right there. I was like, well, this is what he's doing. This is exactly what he's doing. He's listening well, yes, but he's giving you exactly what you're saying while at the same time walking with you the whole time. So that's what led me to my theory of counseling where like all counseling really is kind of, is like you're navigating a terrain with them, not ahead of them. It's like alongside them. I always say, you know, we're driving a car, but you're in the driver's seat. I'm just beside you like with a map. Mm -hmm. And we're kind of, we're, we're using cartography on this map together. I don't have one coming in. 
so oftentimes my initial sessions are all about like let's inform you about what's typical in this situation what's how does your brain work how does a brain work and so that we're informed almost on the same level and then it's like okay now that we're seeing things kind of similarly because you can't always see them similarly because they're their own people what are we missing what's happening and then we get to play with the situation so it's all really came down for me which was different from life coach focusing on that process of change while also giving like absolute respect to the person because it is their story in their life and their intentionality yeah i mean it's so interesting because as you talk about that i think about or it just really reminds me of when i i mean i first became a therapist like this really green part of me that thought people were showing up because there was issues and our job was to like sit and fix, sit and mm-hmm. fix, identify mm-hmm. the barriers, knock them out of the way, get these people to their goals and like keep, just keep going, right? Like almost this drive through experience of mm-hmm. therapy. Um, and it, it was like a real unlearning for myself of how effective is that? You know, is that even aligned in my values? Mm-hmm. Who am I to say this is the right thing to do? This is not the right thing to do. I'm thinking of even um, in my program, we would get like these worksheets of like, here's, the, you know, the whole thought behavior analysis mm-hmm. thing. And like, here's the thing you have to do to change the problem, you know, and it's like those fall flat because they're prescriptive and it's a couple sessions in and you have no rapport and people don't even know what they want yet, whatever it might be. But that whole piece around sitting with someone and like coming to this place of like informed understanding of what's really going on Mm -hmm. and what are we even feeling like we want to do about it, right? Like, are we even wanting to, for it to look different? Mm -hmm. It might hurt and we might not be happy with where we're at, but do we actually want it to look different? Like that's a whole set of choices, a whole set of understanding and information we need to have first. So I I feel like I really resonate with this, with that piece you you mentioned of just sitting with someone getting to like the process piece Mm -hmm. rather than the doing. Cause I think I, I, and, and other clinicians I've spoken with, you know, the first couple of years might look like that fresh out of school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's really, it's interesting, uh, like from a political standpoint, I guess, you know, one of my favorite books is called Anti-Oedipus by Deleuze and Guattari. And what's funny about that book is it sounds like they're going after Freud, right? And Freud is like some amazing fodder. If you, you know, you want to have a lot of fun, read some Freud because it's ridiculous, but also he had some really important things to say. But the point of the book was talking, it's actually uh, um, a writing about capitalism and how what's, what's happening in old school psychology or psychiatry is we're trying to, we're, we're approaching our patients like something is wrong, broken. So it's a medical model approach. And what we're trying to do is to get them back on track from a societal level so that they can be productive, like capitalistically productive. Now we are in a capitalist society, so it is how it functions. However, that's not how people work. Like we work based on what's called desiring productions from that perspective, which just means we're an organism that thrives in an environment. That's it. So regardless of the environment, we're going to thrive in it. How we thrive on it might engender problems later on in life, which brings me to the concept of like safety, right? With the amygdala responses that we have. So when someone comes in and they're like, I have a problem, 
from a societal perspective, they're going to use language like something's wrong. I'm broken. Why can't I do this? Right. If you look at anxiety, it's like, why can't I cope? This is part of the underlying conversation. Right. But if you're able to just be with them through the process, you can find out that the reason it seems like they're not coping is because they're coping exactly as their systems have been developed. They're doing exactly what they're supposed to be doing based on what they know so far. You know, we could walk in and discuss their childhood or traumatic events that happened in the teenage period, let's say. And those defenses were developed and crystallized at that moment. So now they might be like 40, 50 years old. They're using the same defense system. They're protecting themselves in the same way from this intense event. But their amygdala is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Nothing more and nothing less. And so the job then becomes how do we massage that out of the amygdala to increase the level of safety in the same level of safety they have right now, but that's functional for where they want to go. But you can't do that prescriptively. You can't say, well, you obviously want to be like this right now, <laughs> or, or obviously something's wrong in your head and you're using a hammer instead of a screwdriver, right? You can't, that makes no sense. But what does make sense is let's take a deep dive to see how you develop those tools, what you were trying to do, and let's figure out how you can do the same thing now in a way that fits the life that you want to be living. Because either way, you are thriving. It's just your environment's different now. Yeah, I, I, yeah, that really resonates with my work, especially around disordered eating, right? Mm. We, I don't think we talk about eating disorders um, correctly at times in, in mainstream society. For me, I really come from this place um, that eating disorders are a form of coping, right? They served a very important purpose at one point. Mm-hmm. And so for someone to walk into your office and say, Hey, I'm struggling with this thing and I need to get rid of it. Or I, I, you know, I know I shouldn't have this thing. It's almost, um, like clockwork that will do some stuff around. Well, where did you, where did you first develop these behaviors? What was the point and purpose of them? Mm-hmm. We often aren't, you know, engaging in, if we want to use the lingo maladaptive, um, mm-hmm. coping mechanisms, right? We often aren't doing that unless we get something out of it, unless Mm -hmm. there's some sort of buy-in, unless it is doing something, right? Mm -hmm. And so even if it is 10 minutes of feeling numb, 10 minutes of feeling in control, whatever it is, what is it doing for you? Mm -hmm. Because this piece around, like exactly as you mentioned, safety and um, even capitalism, like, yeah, all of my um, potential emotional and mental health issues might be getting in the way of me being like a functioning Uh, productive human in society, but like maybe they're also really soothing all the emotional dysregulation Mm -hmm. in your body. And maybe in that moment, that's exactly what you needed. And Mm -hmm. you just didn't have other skills that could help you, right? Mm -hmm. That could really hold you. And so trying to approach it from a place of like resiliency, you were doing the absolute best you could at the time with the tools you had And even just that shift in language Mm -hmm. often creates a softness, right? Often creates a better understanding of the self where we can do some work around like, okay, what other coping mechanisms do you want to use? But also just allow someone to feel a little bit more intact, a little bit more whole, right? Because the language, as you mentioned, that we do use in our society is I'm broken, something's wrong with me. I'm not effectively being a human. Mm -hmm. 
right? And so really challenging this narrative of like, well, what is it doing for you? Because you wouldn't have been doing it all these years if it didn't have some sort of payoff for you. Mm-hmm. I think, and that's so really, I like watching the relief, like when, when clients actually get that. So wait a minute, you know, because the conversation for us always comes down to like the amygdala versus the prefrontal cortex in a way. It's like, well, your amygdala's job is like short-term survival. So of course you're going to eat, right? Of course you're going to do this and do that. I mean, it, that is exactly what has worked for self-soothing, for protection. So you're going to run right to it. You're not going to use a random tool that you don't know if it works or not. And, but the amygdala is responsible for short-term safety. It's like the, you know, the saber-toothed tiger is under the desk. It thinks you're going to die, right? So when you reach for food or do whatever it is, you've just saved yourself. That's it. Nothing more than that. But the prefrontal cortex will come in then. And, and you know, the prefrontal cortex brings with it long-term consequence conversation, which isn't the job of the amygdala, right? So now you're having an argument between these two people in your head. And, you know, the, the best tool in our society that we've developed is shame for these things. So now I'm going to like beat myself in the head with like the shame baton to stop my amygdala from responding this way. And yet I'm using words and actions, but not feelings and emotions, which is the language of the amygdala. So that gets me nowhere, but more frustrated and then cascades into more, more of the substance use or something to self-soothe because it's too painful. Exactly. Yeah. And, and it's just that cycle, right? Over and over. And, and even beyond the individual, the way society talks about food, mm-hmm. like shame is just riddled throughout eating patterns throughout. I mean, even the fact that we can say I'm bad for having this brownie this week, right? Mm-hmm. Like it's like, there's a moral value to the things we put in our bodies. So it's, I feel like I'm often watching people really oscillate between, um, you know, I did really good on this diet. I'm a good person. I, I stuck to this really strict schedule. I'm productive. I'm effective, right? Because I did it right. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, that's not sustainable for them, right? It's, it's not long lasting. It's, it's too rigid. And so when that inevitably stops working, we swing right over to the other side of shame mm-hmm. of I'm, I'm unworthy. I'm out of control. I have no willpower, really global assumptions and narratives that we hold about ourselves all because of what we're eating Mm -hmm. and all because our body is really like working overtime for us, right? Like there's a reason why you cannot stick to that diet. Your body doesn't want you to, Mm -hmm. it will have you fail that it needs you to eat. Right. Mm -hmm. And so instead of beating yourself up and feeling like you have no willpower and feeling like you're all out, out of control, can we just find a tiny part of you that actually might be understanding or even grateful that your body is continuing to have you eat, Mm -hmm. right? This piece around, I'm not strong enough. Is it really that, or is it that you're surviving? Mm -hmm. Can we offer some self-gratitude, some gratitude to our bodies for trying to keep us alive? And again, it's that piece of relief, right? Because we often don't give people permission to have these narratives of like, oh, maybe I did the good thing by eating more Mm -hmm. than what my diet plan told me to do, right? Especially in our very fat phobic world. And so just creating tiniest spaces, Mm -hmm. right? Where we can maybe think critically or we can maybe just hold two emotions because I know on the first 
at least for the first little bit, not even a little bit for maybe even a lot of years, the shame is probably not <clears throat> going to subside completely. Mm-hmm. Right. But can we have another emotion pull up a seat at the table mm-hmm. and can those two talk? Can we talk with both of them? Because it's, there's more to this picture than just, I have no willpower. I'm a bad person. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The no willpower, bad person talk, like the black and white conversation. I always find that so interesting. I always, <laughs> I do feel and talk a lot about how therapy seems to be like a war on shame. <laughs> like a, our job entirely is to just go after that piece. Because oftentimes, I mean, especially with an amygdala response, shame has no bearing on the conversation. It's something added in. And the added in piece is typically societal. It's typically like environmental, which is exterior to you. And it's all about like identity. How is an identity formed? How do I want to form it? according to these voices that are out in the world. You know, the movies I'm watching, the magazines I'm reading, social media, all this stuff. It's just stuff, right, in our society, which is telling us this is how you're supposed to be. But it's trying to sell us how we're supposed to be. It's not actually, uh, you know, a character, um, what do you want to call that? Vignette. This is trying to sell us one way or the other because that's what our society does. It's just what we do, right? Yeah, it's easy, right? Mm -hmm. Here is this like one set of boxes that you should be and don't deviate. If you deviate, we'll shame you, we'll Mm -hmm. judge you, we'll ostracize you, we'll marginalize you because then I feel safe. Mm -hmm. I feel loved, wanted, adored if I am the one that's in the box, Mm -hmm. right? It's this piece. Yeah, it's this piece too that I don't think we can talk about it without talking about race, without Mm -hmm. talking about gender, right? these ideas of boxes and what's the norm. It's a very white, thin box, Mm -hmm. right? And it's, it's continuously marginalizing people that don't look a certain way, that don't talk a certain way, that don't subscribe to society in the way that we think they should. Mm -hmm. Like there's the idea of functioning and then not functioning, Mm -hmm. right? And the labels that get associated with that are really real. Part of my graduate research is looking at fat phobia Right. And what that really means for people trying to navigate the world in larger bodies, Mm -hmm. but like being safe, like getting to feel safe, getting to feel a part of a community. Mm -hmm. Right. And just the labels that we put on people in larger bodies, the labels, the narratives, the discrimination that's all experienced because of that. Mm really boils down to this piece of being othered and this shame that's just so sewn into the fabric of body size, right? Mm-hmm. And the way that we conceptualize body size in our society. So, I mean, I would agree this piece on like war on shame. It's interesting too, though, because historically some of these professions have been the creators of this shame. That's right. Right? Like you should look a certain way. You should be functioning. Mm-hmm. You should, your, your mental health presentation should look like this. You should check all these developmental boxes. If you don't, there's a problem. We need to have mm-hmm. you assessed. Here's your diagnosis. Here's your label. You only have this kind of uh, capacity, mm-hmm. right? And so it's, while we're trying to undo that with clients, it's also like as a profession, we're also having to undo it at this really mm-hmm. institutional level, which is, I mean, it's a lot of work. It's a tricky task. Yeah, and you can see it, uh, this might be a very like Michael Foucaultian thing to say, but you can see it with what we consider like fringe modalities. You always want to look at like, what is seen as fringe, right? Because fringe is either going to come out in one of two ways. You know, one, it's like new, unheard of, right? So it's like making its way. 
But most of the time it's like, what is pushed aside? Which is just like you said, what doesn't fit the box? What is othered? And when you look at these pieces, it comes out as, you know, like person-centered therapy, right? That's one of my favorite things is Rogers, person-centered therapy. It, when it first came out and even now, it was immediately relegated to a tool in therapy. So it was fringed right away, right? Because it completely undercut the established idea of what psychology and psychiatry was, right? And so, I mean, he was the first psychotherapist because his whole point, as I said before, was like looking at the human for a human, for who they are right in front of you and this person right there and respecting the whole world that comes in with them. Because it's not just a person, it's not just like uh, whoever they are, right? But he was immediately cast aside into a tool. So now we see this all the time, right? In every training modality there is, all even the popular ones, they talk about like empathy, non-judgment, congruence, like all of these pieces. And yet they're all directive. And so it's this funny thing that happens. But then with the rest of the fringe type stuff, you have things like narrative therapy, which does the same thing, but attacks the stories we tell ourselves. Right. So it's, you know, one of my favorite things from Michael White was that the problem is the problem. The person's not the problem. Well, that sentence itself goes completely against the medical model of how this stuff works. So it's, you know, it's, it's always funny to be suspicious about what is fringe and what is like upfront in therapy, what's popular. Cause then you can see right there, like, wait a minute, that's the pl- political regime or the war machine at, at play, right. To speak in a Deleuzean term. Yeah, it's a hundred percent. I mean, I definitely early on in my career too, I had these battles of like, well, what are the most effective, well-known, well-studied models for treating eating disorders? And let me go get trained in all of those. You go to the APA, you go to some of these authorities and it's like CBTE, Mm -hmm. enhanced cognitive behavioral therapy, which yes, has been shown to, you know, alleviate symptoms and lead to recovery, all of these things. But because it's easily studied, easily validated, we know that it, um, we know that it works in some of these cases, right? There isn't a lot of space around something like narrative therapy or, you know, even recommendations to do some of these other trauma processing pieces with eating disorders. Consistently, it seems to be over and over again, depending on obviously the authority you go to, CBTE is, is there, it's like the gold standard and family therapy, but yeah. So I definitely had these, I mean, these identity crises of like, okay, but I find in my work, narrative therapy is so powerful, mm-hmm. right? I find attachment-based stuff to be super, super helpful. And none of this is written on like the global authorities of how to treat um, eating disorders, mm-hmm. right? And, and I want to be careful. I'm sure there's several authorities that, you know, say a variety of things, but in my experience, what I've seen is, is that it often uh, doesn't talk about some of these fringe modalities or these other non-easily validated modalities, mm-hmm. right? And so how do I, or how do we really justify using some of these modalities if they aren't what's overly validated from random control trials, CBT mm-hmm. essentially, mm-hmm. or EMDR at times, right? And so it definitely creates this tension of like, well, we know some of this to work. We see it really flourish with, with certain clients. You know, we see it be just helpful in terms of like general wellness and feeling better, but it's not the gold standard of da-da-da as said mm-hmm. by da-da-da, right? And so I often would have these pieces of like, well, what's the right thing to do? And that's where it really came back to like, well, what does 
like what does the person you're working with want mm-hmm. how how is it working for them if i continuously force cbte on someone where like inside of um you know a society where like race and gender and class are all at play cbt is not usually i find to be the most helpful right mm-hmm. there's larger structures at play so how how is all this resonating with the client like mm-hmm asking that for that feedback, are you enjoying this? Like, is this approach is what we're doing in these sessions right now in the here and now, is it beneficial to you? Mm -hmm. Because if not, there are other tricks available to us. There are other modalities available to us. Um, So that learning for me took some time, took some time to get there. Yeah. I'm with you on that. It was, I was lucky because of my obsession with philosophy and I just, but it was all like, it's funny how it worked out. It was all chance. It was just chance that I happened to be interested in like Whitehead and Deleuze and Foucault while I was studying psychology. And I was, I didn't even know at the time that uh, philosophy had informed psychology. I was very ignorant of those two facts because I'd never studied it before going into my master's. I had no touch with psychology other than like one, a one-off course in like year one of my undergrad. <clears throat> but I was very lucky to have studied what I studied alongside it because it guided me towards Rogers. And the minute that happened, I was incredibly skeptical of like CBT and things like that because of uh, subjectivation. Like who, who has the keys to my subjectification, which just means, as we all know, so this is less for you and more for the audience, um, how we build our identities. Like who's got the tools, right? In a capitalist society, our tools are external. We're fed uh, threads of what our identity could look like. But there is no conversation about things like practical identity. Where do we find value in the day-to-day things that we're doing? And so at the end of the day, that's the client's job, right? But we have to sift through all of the ways that our identity is being informed. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, we're humans, we thrive in our environment. So being informed from an external source about how we'd like to be is fine. It's just more like a grist for the mill, right? But therapy, like in my opinion, the job of therapy is to help the client figure out how much control they actually have on that. Like, Where does their agency lie in your development of your identity? How does that work? But that's such a complicated conversation that things like CBT can't, can't deal with that. We're, that's why it's relegated to symptom management, which is fine, kind of like taking an Advil for a headache, right? Which is back to the med- medical model. So you can measure things which are symptom management, but you can't measure things like identity development. It's too complicated. And fundamentally for me, that's exactly why our job is not to tell a client how to live, it's to show them options and to watch them thrive. So create a safe space where they can feel heard and loved to go on this adventure of trying to take down these barriers and thrive on their own. And that's why it's such a delicate process. Yeah. I mean, I, I fully agree with you, especially on these pieces of identity, right? In a world where, and I'm just thinking for folks in larger bodies, like identity at times or labels, maybe I should say, are completely forced upon you, right? Mm-hmm. With no consent. Right. And so this, this piece of owning what, what feels like it's aligned in your values and then rejecting what's not mm. sure. I can do that on like a internal 
value system level, but I'm still really aware of what society might think or say, right? Even for people of color, I'm aware of what this police officer might think as, as I'm being pulled over, mm-hmm. right? And so recognizing the limitations of something like CBT means talking about the structures and the institutions and the policies and the norms that frame all of this identity stuff, because at times the labels and narratives and stereotypes get that get forced onto us are completely, I mean, Mm non-consensual, right? And yet they're still there with very real implications for how I move through the world, Mm -hmm. for how I drive, for how I show up in job interviews. I mean, I'm biracial um, and I definitely have privilege when it comes to at times, being ethnically ambiguous right Mm -hmm. and so i don't experience a lot of the same or might not experience a lot of the same discrimination that um other people might other people of color but i i notice for myself like when i go into a job interview am i straightening my hair Mm -hmm. you know am i straightening my hair am i wearing all the appropriate stuff am i watching the language i use am i really enunciating my words like just these things that i have to be aware of Mm or I am made aware of, right? Because of race and CBT is not going to get me out of that. Mm-hmm. You know, CBT is not going to alleviate that stress and that burden off of me. It's my reality. So, yeah, I mean, I, I fully agree with what you're saying. Yeah. It's all the, it's all the pieces of the environment at play, not internal dialogues, thought processes are going to change emotions. Like you can't think your way out of that right it's just how the body is expressed in the world and how the world encounters the body based on the political structure at play yeah 100 percent. which is so complicated and for me fascinating it's my favorite part of the work which makes sense um but so important and it's also so delicate which i also think why it's like a scary thing to go after for a lot of people but politically like from a capitalistic perspective this has got really political today which is unusual for me but here we are that's how the capitalist structure is built we're built into boxes because we can be productive that way but that is all decided outside of us we're born into that and that makes it a lot more difficult Mm -hmm. absolutely you know it's it's fascinating because i one of my very first um jobs abroad I, i worked in cuba for a year um and I held a relationship with that country for five years. I, I spent a lot of time there. Um, and obviously it's a different sociopolitical context, a different piece even around race and identity. Um, and that still to this day really informs a lot of my work, even my attachment, the piece around attachment and working from an attachment perspective because there is this thing about community in collectivist cultures, right? There is this thing about um, even race, understanding race from um, just a completely different perspective, understanding that, you know, people of color experience certain discriminations, but that there's like a role to play by everyone in Mm -hmm. alleviating that burden, that this isn't just like the burden of a person of color, this isn't just the burden of a black woman, but like this is a burden of an entire country. And so the context you're working in can really enable you or enlighten you to use different modalities and call on community differently. Whereas I find when I'm working in Canada, 
um, it's harder because there's this more isolated individualistic perspective where mm -hmm. I can't engage community in the same way. I can't engage family often in the same way. So yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating recognizing the limitations of your sociopolitical context when you're working just individually with someone on their mental health. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because it does, you know, it's neat because you, you create a microcosm in the room right? It's, you can't represent a community in an individualistic society because it is, although I have weird thoughts on that, but it is entirely individualistic within a community. So we're a community nonetheless, which is very strange, but definitely the title of a different podcast. <clears throat> but you create that microcosm in the therapeutic room. And that is essentially like the therapist's responsibility. Right. So for myself as like a cisgender white male, I basically don't encounter these things at all. Right. So there's a level of strife out there that I don't see encounter or anything. Right. And, you know, job interviews are not, I mean, they were built for me so I can show up in a suit with who I am and that's it. Those layers are not even there. But on the other side of that, it's up to me to be informed about things like that. That's my job. Right. And, and when uh, the George Floyd incident happened, that would have been right where the like the therapist job specifically is to say, OK, this isn't something to be ignored. You have to read the books. You have to understand it, because if you don't, you're doing your clients a disservice, regardless of who comes through your door, because my job is to create that microcosm. So if myself as a therapist is walking in with my biases just in tow, then I'm just creating the same situation that these people are encountering outside of the room but I don't know, right? And ignorance is not an option when it comes to things like that. So I know for my own development, that was one of the hardest things I had to ever do is to come face to face with my own privilege, which I wasn't ignorant to at the time, but it didn't really like hit me across the head, like in those moments. And then it felt disingenuous to ignore it at that point. And so it's really interesting as a therapist, like your job is to create that microcosm. And if you're not doing that, then you are doing a complete you're causing pain, which is the opposite of the job. A hundred percent. Therapy is political. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, 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 you'll encounter some literature, some debate around that, but it is for me a very political process. I can't separate. I mean, I can't separate those things out from my own identity, let alone <laughs> anybody else in the room. Right. And so it, it, there's a whole other element of our work of being inherently aware of what we bring to the relationship what we're lacking in the relationship and how are we going to i mean if we can't make up for it because in a lot of ways we can't but how are we at least going to be aware of it mm -hmm. how are we going to lean into it and it not just be this thing that goes unsaid mm -hmm. right it's a complete disservice it it waters down the work if we never get there so yeah i i agree with you yeah it waters down the work and it creates hostility mm -hmm. even unsaid which is i mean we're supposed to have a microcosm of care. So if you don't take care of that, you're doing it right. It's just your job, but it's a hard one. It's a hard one to understand and come to face with, but it's incredibly important on many different levels, just the intersectionality, right. Of the politics involved. So you mentioned intersectionality and that's one of the best ways to put it because there's so much that goes into this political event of therapy that you really have to be informed on how to express it and understand it. Yeah, I fully agree. Fully agree. Awesome. Well, we're reaching the end of our time here. 
and this was uh, an exciting conversation and we went down some rabbit holes I never expected, uh, which was a lot of fun. So before I close all of this off, I just wanted to invite you once again to help people find you and then we'll take it from there. Sure. So I am on Instagram at Morgan P Therapy, or you can find me at my website, morganpommels.com. That's P-O-M-M-E-L-L-S.com. Awesome. Yeah. Well, it's great to have you on the show and we'll definitely be bugging you to come back. Please, please bug away. This is awesome. So <laughs> All right. Well, thank you everybody for listening. If you have any comments, questions, reactions, whatever's, uh, you can bring them to the Instagram page at couch.2.couch. Uh, the website itself, chuck at chuckleblancounseling.ca. You all know where to find me. I've said this a million times. Um, but yeah, definitely reach out, send comments, ask questions. And, you know, if, you're, if you find a lot from this session that we had today, and it, it really helped you in one way or the other, send it to the people you think it would help more. So send it around. That's the best way to get the word out there and to help people find the, the podcast. So I appreciate it. We'll see you next week. Thank you.